Hi, and welcome to the Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dodson. On this edition of the podcast, you'll hear the latest on the Indiana Homeowners Assistance Fund accepting applications from homeowners struggling to stay current on their mortgage. Justin Higgs reports Indiana Public Schools will soon be able to hire professionals without teaching experience under a new law. And Chris Noti has a conversation with Dr. Pierre Atlas, senior lecturer at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, about the latest with the war in Ukraine. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. Indiana homeowners struggling to stay current on their mortgage, property taxes, or related fees can receive up to $35,000 in one-time assistance through a state program made possible by the Federal American Rescue Plan. The $168 million Indiana Homeowner Assistance Fund is now accepting applications for mortgage assistance for Hoosiers who lost a job, saw their income decrease, or incurred additional child care costs because of the COVID-19 pandemic. To be eligible, applicants must be the owner-occupant of a single-family home, condominium, or a multi-family home located in Indiana that's used as the homeowner's primary residence, have an income equal to or less than 150% of the area median income or 100% of the national median income, whichever is greater, and experienced a financial hardship since January 21st, 2020, associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. Any assistance awarded by IHAF is paid directly to the mortgage lender and is not considered taxable income for the beneficiary. Applications are available online at 877-GET-THE-HOPE.org or by calling 877-GET-HOPE. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Miraville-based White Lodging is moving out of the suburban markets and is selling off management contracts for suburban hotels. The hospitality company also says it's been selling off individual suburban hotel properties as parts of a multi-year strategy to shift focus to more upscale urban and lifestyle hotels. No layoffs will take place at either the Miraville corporate headquarters or the hotels themselves. A Pennsylvania company is buying the contracts from White Lodging. The company founded in 1985, is focusing on urban markets like Indianapolis, Chicago, and Louisville. It now has 50 hotels, 40 restaurants, and 10 rooftop bars. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Lake County Sheriff Oscar Martinez Jr. no longer asked for immediate action from a judge that he would be able to sign contracts about the county jail without getting consent from the county commissioners. Martinez withdrew his request after Correctional Health Indiana Inc. agreed to continue providing medical care at the Lake County Jail through at least August 1st 
at the 2021 rates approved by the commissioners. That's even though the sheriff authorized a 5% increase for the organization to $6.1 million a year. The sheriff now asked Lake Superior Judge Stephen Sheely to promptly rule on the central legal question on whether the sheriff possesses contracting authority independent of the commissioners. The commissioner said in court documents that there's no question Indiana law expressly grants authority to negotiate contracts for the county solely to the commissioners. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Sherrillville residents will have a chance to weigh in on the proposed Kennedy Avenue expansion. The project would widen and reconstruct the roadway from Main Street all the way to US 30. 40 residential properties and six business properties would have to be relocated and a number of cross streets at the Penzi Greenway Trail would have to be realigned. The town says the goal is to reduce fees and improve connectivity, capacity, access management, and pavement conditions. A public hearing will be held Wednesday, March 30th at 6 p.m. at Sherrillville Town Hall. Design consultant DLZ will give a presentation and residents will have a chance to comment. Written comments can also be submitted until April 25th. More details can be found at Sherrillville.org. If it moves forward, the Kennedy Avenue project is expected to take place in four phases between 2024 and 2026. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Access to Ogden Dunes may remain limited for another couple weeks. Police Chief Jeremy Ogden says the engineer working on the bridge over Burns Waterway has found additional issues that need repair. That, combined with weather conditions, could delay the reopening to April 6th. The town's other access point is a railroad crossing at Hillcrest near US 20. Ogden says Norfolk Southern has been planning its stops to avoid blocking the crossing. He says the only significant issue in recent days is when a train with a mechanical failure blocked the crossing for three hours. If something like that happens again, Ogden says officers may escort traffic across the closed bridge, allowing one vehicle to pass at a time. He urges drivers to be patient and says anyone driving the wrong way around the backed up traffic or running the crossing gates will be cited. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. The latest new COVID variant isn't actually new or a variant. 
I'm Eric Berman. BA2 is an Omicron subvariant. It's blamed for a rise in cases in countries in Europe and Asia. Community Health Network Chief Medical Officer Romuletti says it's actually been around for several months. He expects more cases here, too, but says while it's more contagious, it doesn't appear to be more dangerous. Several people may get cold-like symptoms of a sore throat or cough or fevers, and then will respond with symptomatic therapy and go away within a few days. That's what I'm hoping for. One thing about the whole pandemic, because it's always been unpredictable, but we could be uh, cautiously optimistic. Yuletti cautions the virus still poses a threat to the elderly and those with compromised immune systems. Eric Berman, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun recently walked back comments he made earlier this week saying he misunderstood the question when asked by Times of Northwest Indiana chief political reporter Dan Cardin if he supported the high court leaving the question of interracial marriage to the states. Braun responded yes. He added that the Supreme Court shouldn't, quote, homogenize issues nationwide, instead leaving them up to the individual states to decide. Braun was speaking to reporters during a press call on Tuesday to discuss his evaluation of Supreme Court Justice nominee Ketanji Brown-Jackson. In his latest statements, clarifying his response to that question earlier last week, Braun also wanted to make it clear that he condemns racism in any form. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Hoosier lottery officials aren't saying much about the General Assembly blocking the lottery from offering online games. The Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette uncovered the lottery's exploration of online gaming in the middle of the 2022 legislative session. Lawmakers responded quickly, creating language that blocks such a move without legislative approval. At a lottery commission meeting, the day after the governor signed that ban into law, executive director Sarah Taylor wouldn't say much. We're definitely going to evaluate everything that's happened and prepare through our annual process with the business plan next steps. Taylor deflected any further questions to a statement from the lottery. It says their exploration of online games was driven by, quote, changes in consumer behavior, end quote. And the statement says the lottery will continue to research innovations in the industry with the tools available to them. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Hoosiers will no longer have to get a permit to carry a handgun in public starting July 1st. That's after Governor Eric Holcomb signed the so-called permitless carry bill into law on Monday. In a statement, Holcomb defended his decision by expressing his full support of the Second Amendment and noting that 23 other states have some version of a permitless carry policy. He also says people currently barred from carrying from carrying a gun in public will still be barred after the law takes effect. Yet the state police testified that thousands of people each year had their carry permit applications denied. Opponents of the bill question 
how those people will know they're not allowed to carry in public once the permits are no longer required. State Police Superintendent Doug Carter pledged in a statement to work towards solutions in acting the law and make necessary changes to firearms enforcement. A few weeks ago, Carter sharply criticized Republicans pushing the law, telling them their support of permitless carry meant they do not support law enforcement. There was no mention of this sentiment in Carter's latest statement. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Indiana Public Schools will soon be able to hire professionals without teaching experience under a new law signed by Governor Eric Holcomb. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Justin Hicks reports lawmakers designed it to fill vacant teacher jobs but opponents worry it will hurt education quality. Adjunct teachers can start working in public schools as early as the next academic year. The state only requires them to have four years of career experience and pass a background check to be eligible for part-time or full-time jobs. Once hired, they must be assigned a mentor intended to help guide the new teachers. In testimony on the bill, several teachers said they felt it disregarded the importance of pedagogy or the way material is taught. And one major pain point for unions, adjuncts aren't allowed to be a part of the teacher union. Several superintendents favored the new law, saying they're having a hard time hiring teachers. When the law takes effect in January, schools will be required to announce vacant adjunct positions at school board meetings and notify parents. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Justin Hicks. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Governor Eric Holcomb vetoed a bill Monday that would have banned transgender girls from participating in girls' school sports. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jenny Lindsay reports, Holcomb's veto letter echoes what many opponents of the bill said during this year's legislative session. Holcomb says in his veto letter that House Bill 1041 falls short of providing clarity about fairness in K-12 sports. He notes his concerns about lawsuits and about how the law would create inconsistent policies for athletes across school districts. He also questions if there's a problem for it to address at all. Chris Paulson is the CEO of Indiana Youth Group, a nonprofit for LGBTQ youth. She says his letter reinforces arguments already made against the bill. I think people are starting to um, think more about these bills and how they harm people and the fact that they just um, don't help anyone. The General Assembly could still override the veto with a simple majority in both chambers. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Jeannie Lindsay. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. Here's Regionally Speaking host Chris Noti with a conversation with Dr. Pierre Atlas, a political scientist and senior lecturer at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, on the latest with the war in Ukraine. The Russia-Ukraine conflict has been going on now for pretty much a month, and things are shifting almost rapidly and seemingly almost every day. In fact, the course of the invasion is rapidly shifting, at least in the thoughts of IUPUI professor, political scientist, and lecturer Pierre Atlas. We've spoken with him a couple times before about the situation, his observations on how the conflict is coming along, and he's back with us for another observation. Thanks for joining us on Lakeshore Public Radio, sir. 
sir. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me back. Well, last time we talked, uh, nobody seemed to know how the reaction was going to be in Russia uh, to what uh, President Putin uh, and uh, his uh, generals were planning and in turn doing. And that's what I guess turned out to be something that surprised everyone. Will you bring us up to date with your latest thoughts about uh, what has happened so far and certainly the, the opposition uh, back in Russia to uh, what has taken place? I think uh, a couple of things that um, nobody really saw coming was how badly the Russian military would perform in Ukraine. Um, to the point now where we're, I think we're this is the 28th day of the war today, um, and basically it's become sort of a war of attrition. Um, I think uh, all of the experts, including U.S. military people that were being interviewed, everybody sort of thought, you know, Kiev would fall, Kiev would fall in a matter of maybe the first week or two of the war. It's, it, it has not fallen yet. Um, the Russian military is, is performing incredibly badly. Um, and so what, what, the, what the Russians have done in, in, in response to that is they've basically focused on attacking civilians. Um, bombarding civilians, um, civilian infrastructure, Every, almost everything they're doing today, uh, it, it would cl- be classified as a war crime, as a violation of the law of armed conflict. Another thing that really I think did not see happening, and I didn't see happening, was um, in the very beginning you had this major groundswell within Russia of, of large anti-war protests. But very quickly, uh, the Putin, uh, the, the Duma, which is the, uh, the legislature, which is a very much of a, of a, a rubber stamp for Putin, passed these draconian laws um, that really shuts down dissent. Um, as, you're, as you know, I mean, it makes it a crime up to 15 years to say anything about the war that doesn't fit with the official Russian propaganda. Even saying the word war or invasion can get you up to 15 years in prison. And so they've been very rapidly shutting down any type of, type of uh, demonstration that takes place. But the demonstrations still, still do take place. And today I just saw, just before I came on the air with you, um, uh, uh, a high-ranking government official, Putin's personal representative on climate change, who'd been a Putin advisor for a very long time, has just resigned and left the government in protest over over the war. So there are still some elements of, of protest going on, but that's been sort of squashed, um, and that's happening within Russia. But then in the war itself, um, the Russians are, are performing very badly, um, and they're they're hitting civilians uh, in response. And so those are I think those are two things that. People didn't really see coming. I didn't really see coming. I thought the war would, you know, a month into it, that, that uh, you know, the Ukrainians, uh, would, it would be an insurgency because basically the Ukrainian military would probably be defeated, and that is not happening. I know in our last conversations we have talked about this briefly just at the outset of all of the uh, conflict about the possibility that this could uh, lead to World War III. And I know recently it turns out that uh, one of uh, the uh, president's spokespeople uh, is uh, refusing to rule out the use of nuclear weapons if it became to that point. Uh, There was some conversation that uh, was made to uh, CNN recently. Uh, What are your thoughts about that? And and is it still a situation that is so tenuous that it could come to that? Yeah, I I saw that interview. It was with uh, Christian Amanpour on CNN. It was Putin's uh, spokesman. And you're absolutely right. I mean, he basically, she she asked him flat out, about the possibility of, of nuclear weapons. She wanted him to basically say, no, we would not do this, and he refused to go there. Um, he basically said the official Russian policy is um, they would only use nuclear weapons if, if Russia faced an existential threat. But he didn't explain what that means. And mm-hmm. the way Putin is acting and the way he's been talking about Ukraine, if Ukraine is really part of Russia, you know, maybe he could say that's an existential threat if, Ukraine, if they're not winning. Um, I personally don't think we have to worry about um, you know, major exchange of nuclear uh, uh, missiles against uh, between the U.S. and, and, and Russia. Um, I think we're sort of thinking in terms of the old Cold War 
type stuff. What we really have to be thinking about, which I think might be a, might become a possibility, uh, especially as as the Russian military continues to perform badly, um, is potentially the use of a, tact- a small tactical nuclear weapon um, in Ukraine itself. And um, the thing is that when we talk about nuclear weapons, when we talk about the ultimate red lines and nuclear deterrence and all that, we're really thinking about you know intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missiles. We're thinking about submarine launch missiles. Um, these kinds of things between, you know, Russia and the U.S., that's what we think about when we think of World War III. But what happens if Putin actually uses a small, low-yield tactical nuclear weapon against the Ukraine, Ukrainians? Um, what do we do to that? Do we respond? Do we say, you, you've now engaged in nuclear warfare? Are we going to let him get away with it? I mean, more sanctions? It's, it's, a, it's something that we're not there yet because we're sort of still focusing on, you know, the Cold War understanding of nuclear warfare and how to deter that. Um, we're sort of beyond that in some ways. Just like we don't really know what to do about a cyber attack, at what point does a cyber attack become an act of war that you respond to militarily, and what do you do? We're sort of in uncharted territory here. Hopefully uh, he will not use a a tactical nuclear weapon, but I think that he's sort of leaving that as an option. Another option he's leaving is the possibility of using biological chemical weapons with all these um, false charges of uh, the U.S. and the Ukrainians having bioweapons bio labs in Ukraine, um, that could be sort of laying the groundwork for a false flag uh, attack using chemical or biological weapons by the Russians. That's certainly a fear that the U.S. has pointed out. Um, so we'll see what, you know, again, we're, we're sort of in uncharted territory. We don't know how, what he's going to do as, as he gets backed up against the wall, especially as the Russian military is failing in Ukraine. We're talking with uh, IUPUI political scientist and the lecturer, senior lecturer, uh, Pierre Atlas, about uh, the situation involving Russia and Ukraine these days. Uh, some of the updates, of course, uh, are very, very alarming uh, as what's happening in the, the actual conflict itself. And now we have, uh, I guess, the opportunity to find out, uh, at least with the word comes back uh, from uh, Brussels, as uh, President Joe Biden visits uh, Brussels and Poland in talking with uh, NATO leaders uh, about the latest situation. What are your thoughts about uh, the president's uh, trip and, and what you're hoping that might come out of that? Well, I, I'm, this is a very important uh, development that's taking place. Uh, as we're speaking right now, Biden is on his way to Europe. So I think tomorrow morning we'll get the, the news of, of uh, what happened. Um, yes, it's a, it's a full-blown uh, NATO meeting. He's also going to be he's also been invited to meet with the entire European Union, uh, the Council of the European Union, all 27 countries that's, uh, as the exclusive guest. I don't believe that's ever happened before, where the entire European Union um, has invited the, the American president to come and speak to them. What it says, first of all, is uh, how unified NATO is and the European Union is against uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so one thing to really keep in mind is, is what types of statements come out of these meetings. Um, uh, what I did uh, see is that the, one of the plans that have been announced already is NATO is going to be increasing the number of battle groups they have in uh, Eastern European NATO member states um, to basically uh, increase their military presence. Um, as you said, uh, he's, going to, he's going to go to Poland, which is a significant. It's on, it's obviously, it's on the Ukrainian border. Poland has already taken in, um, I believe, over 2 million um, uh, refugees uh, of the 3.5 million refugees that have fled uh, Ukraine. So it's a very important thing. I guess the thing to keep in mind is what, what statements come out of this, uh, how unified, uh, how, how little daylight do we see between NATO, the European Union, and the United States? Is it going to be a, a genuine uh, consolidation of the democratic world, um, of, the, of the European uh, Western democratic world, the Atlantic Alliance against Russia? Um, and then uh, at what point will we see other democratic countries perhaps uh, joining in as well? 
particularly uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, others, um, you know, that, that may actually line up with uh, whatever the, the, the EU and NATO and the United States do. Um, and I think there'll be a new round of sanctions as well against more people in Russia uh, to try and target more people to try and separate them out from Putin. So we'll see what happens, but it's a very important uh, move. Um, I don't think anybody had imagined just how unified the West would be in response to this. Certainly Putin did not. Putin, one of his major goals for the last 20 years has been to divide uh, the United States from Europe and to divide the Europeans against themselves, and that has completely backfired. He has, he has unified the West in, in ways that we have not seen in maybe 30 years. And one of the observations I know that you had recently in a column that was in the Indianapolis Business Journal uh, talks about the fact that, that you feel that uh, perhaps that uh, President Putin may have uh, bitten off more than he chewed. Yes, I, I, re- I really do. And I think we're seeing that um, in, in a lot of ways, what I've just identified. Um, the fact, again, that the Russian military is, is uh, bogged down. Um, and in, in some places, including in some of the outskirts of Kiev, uh, the Ukrainian military are, are, are mounting counteroffensives. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, there's the expression of paper tiger. Um, in many ways, what, what the Russian military is turning out to be is a paper bear. I mean, using the Russian bear as a, as a, as a metaphor. Um, and I think that this is actually humiliating for the, for the Russians. It's, it's actually going to decrease um, their power um, in, in terms of how, how their military power is interpreted by, by the rest of the world. Um, it can actually decrease its deterrent effect because, you know, people were afraid of the Russians. What that does, though, what that does suggest, though, is that what, what, does, what does Russia have to fall back on militarily if they cannot defeat the, the Ukrainians uh, in a conventional struggle after one month of fighting? Well, they, they, they have two things that they can fall back on. One is, is, is destroying the country and its, its civilian infrastructure and its civilian population, which is what they're doing. So really the, the Russians are not targeting the Ukrainian military uh, targets so much. They're targeting civilian centers. And the other thing which you, which you mentioned earlier, which you brought up earlier, was you know, sort of like the, uh, the, literally the nuclear option, um, which is if things really get bad, will, will he do something kind of crazy? And at that point, I would say the really thing, important thing is to think about is what is it, and I think I've, we've talked about this in an earlier uh, interview, was what, what is the command and control of, of, uh, of Russia's nuclear weapons, including mm-hmm. its tactical nukes? If Putin gives an order, um, will it be obeyed? by his generals, by the colonels, by the lieutenants on the ground who actually have to push the buttons and all this kind of stuff. I mean, will will they actually say, yes, we're going to do this, or will they say, wait a minute, no, you've gone too far? Um, Putin himself, he he seems to be uh, not acting very rationally. He he, he really doesn't seem to be that way. Um, And his back is up against the wall, um, and he cannot lose face, but he's losing face every minute. Peter Atlas is Senior Lecturer at IUPUI, and thank you very much, Professor Atlas, for joining us once again with your observations, and we hope to find out here more from you soon. Thank you, and hopefully this will work out uh, in, a, in a peaceful manner, um, as the, maybe about the next time we talk. We'll see. All right. Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte can be heard each Monday through Thursday at 11 a.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org, where you can also find podcasts of the show when you click on the program link. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host 
Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm D. Dotson.